During the Spanish and American War, one of the United States' great battleships to see action was the USS Oregon. When the war broke out, the Oregon was stationed at the Bremerton Naval Yards, which was located at Puget Sound in the state of Washington. The ship was needed in the Atlantic to support the invasion of Cuba. So, the ship had to sail around the tip of South America, through the Straits of Magellan and back to Cuba. This took a great deal of time, and after the war, this voyage of the USS Oregon was one of the main reasons for the United States to consider building a canal through the center of Latin America, somewhere. The idea of building a canal is not new. As early as 1850, when gold seekers were crossing the Isthmus of Panama to board ships on the other side of the Isthmus and then hurry to the gold fields, the United States had an idea then to build a canal. In fact, in anticipation of the United States building a canal, a railroad was constructed across the Isthmus in 1850 just for the purpose of aiding in the building of that canal. But as the gold rush died down, so did the desire to build a canal. And by 1869, the Transcontinental Railroad was completed, and a citizen of the United States could cross his own country on a train. So what need was there for any canal? This story, then, is the story of how the Panama Canal was finally constructed. There have been other attempts by other nations to build such a canal across the Isthmus of Panama before. But perhaps the most ambitious attempt was the one made by La Société Internationale du Canal Interoceanique, which was the French Canal Company. In 1877, this company had a survey made to find out if it was feasible to build such a canal. When the survey was completed, construction costs were figured out to what the French Canal Company said were within 10%. Furthermore, it was to be a sea-level canal like the Suez, which had been constructed by the French. The leader of this enterprise was also expected to draw stockholders to invest in this company, for the man to head it was none other than Ferdinand de Lesseps. De Lesseps, the builder of the Suez Canal. It was during the 1850s that de Lesseps was sent by the French to Egypt on a diplomatic mission. Though not a trained engineer, he recognized the ease with which a ship canal could be cut through the hundred miles of sand that separated the Mediterranean Sea from the Red Sea. It took both imagination and courage to conceive a ship canal of that length. De Lesseps' greatest difficulty, as with everything new, was in persuading people that it could be done. From 1859 to 1869, the canal was dug. It was completed in 10 years and cost a million dollars per mile to build. But De Lesseps had done it. Now, surely, if de Lesseps dug the Suez Canal, he could do the same in Panama. 
So thousands of laborers and millions of dollars worth of machinery were sent to the Isthmus of Panama for the preparation of the construction of the canal. Then the lack of foresight and planning began to tell on the French Canal Company. The men who were working on the canal began to drop in their tracks from yellow fever. This brought on a great demoralization amongst the laborers. Then, too, there was much graft with the money of the French Canal Company. All of this finally meant the defeat of the French effort to build their canal. By 1890, they were done, bankrupt, and the investors of the French Canal Company were wiped out. The Canal Company now fell into the hands of the receivers. When a company goes bankrupt, the stockholders appoint someone to try and sell the old equipment or anything else he can to salvage some of their investment from the company. This man, who has the job of selling the materials of the old canal company, is called a receiver. And the man that had this job was a man by the name of Felipe Bunavaria. As the 20th century rolled around, the United States decided to build a canal. But where? Since the Congress of the United States was paying for its construction, it felt it ought to have the right to say where the canal should be built. So Congress created the Isthmian Canal Commission to find the best possible place to build a canal. After some lengthy looking, the Congress decided to build a canal across the Isthmus of Nicaragua. So men were ordered to start making the necessary treaties with Nicaragua so that construction could begin. While this was happening, Mother Nature stepped in and changed the mind of the Congress. Just off the coast of Nicaragua are the Corn Islands. On one of these islands, there is an active volcano, a certain Mount Pilay. Well, all of a sudden, Mount Pilay blew her top. In fact, she blew the entire island off the map. This caused a tidal wave and the coast of Nicaragua was pounded severely. While everyone was examining the damages, one man was having drawings made of the disaster area and had these pictures and drawings sent to the members of the Congress of the United States. Who was the man? None other than Felipe Bunavaria. He was hoping to get Congress to change its mind about building the canal across the Isthmus of Nicaragua. He would like Congress to buy up the old canal rights of the French Canal Company. Was he able to sway Congress's mind? Yes, he was. Congress went so far as to ask him how much he wanted for the old French Canal Company rights. Bunavaria calmly replied, $109 million. The Congress gasped. Why, what did he take them for, a bunch of suckers? They wouldn't pay it. What's the matter? The price too high? Well, for you guys, this week and this week only, it will be on special. Forty million dollars. Well, maybe that isn't exactly how the bidding went. But when it was all over with, Bunavaria had sold the United States 
the rights to build a canal across the Isthmus of Panama. But there was a stipulation. The condition was that it had to be all right with the Colombian government who owned the property. So the United States now went to deal with the government of Colombia. Would they allow the United States to build a canal across the Isthmus of Panama? Our Secretary of State at this time was John Hay, and he would talk with the minister from Colombia, a man by the name of Haran. The two men talked a deal. The United States agreed to pay Colombia $10 million for the land and for allowing us to build the canal. Plus, the United States would pay Colombia $250,000 per year rental on a 99-year lease. Colombia felt that this was not enough, and so the whole deal fell through. The United States felt it was a fair deal and saw no reason for giving more. This also meant that Bunavaria would not get his $40 million, for as you can remember, part of his deal with Congress was that we would buy up his old French Canal Company rights only if Colombia would agree to the deal. Then all of a sudden it happened. The people who lived on the Isthmus of Panama revolted against Colombia. The revolt was led by none other than that great Panamanian patriot, Felipe Bunavaria. It was over before it got started. And within three days, the United States recognized the independence of the Republic of Panama. Boy, what some guys won't do for $40 million. Now that Panama was independent, she sent her ablest minister to deal with the United States. Her minister plenipotentiary was none other than that great Panamanian statesman, Felipe Bunavaria. So a treaty was made, the Hay-Bunavaria Treaty, which gave the United States the right to build a canal across the Isthmus of Panama. Well now, it looks as if the United States is in the canal building business. But what makes the United States think that it can build a canal any better than could the French? After all, it was yellow fever that kept the French from finishing the canal. That is true, but a lot has happened since then. Up until 1901, no one knew how yellow fever was spread. When yellow fever broke out, it was if the very angel of death had come walking invisible and slaying without cause. Then in 1901, the cause or the transmitter of yellow fever was discovered. The man who was most responsible for having found out the cause of yellow fever was a Dr. Carlos Finlay. He was a physician in Havana, Cuba, and as early as 1883, he declared that he felt that the disease was transmitted by a mosquito. But in 1883, he was just laughed at as some kind of a quack doctor. However, in 1901, when a team of American doctors went to Cuba to find out the cause of yellow fever, they contacted Dr. Finlay and worked with him in finding out what caused yellow fever to be transmitted. In charge of this team of army doctors was Dr. Walter Reed. 
Once in Cuba, experimental tents were set up and volunteers were asked for experiments, the most deadly kind of experiments. What the doctors were going to do was to let themselves be bitten by the different mosquitoes to find out if the disease was spread that way. Well, what if it was? Wouldn't these men contract the disease and stand a chance of dying? Yes, they would. But these doctors were dedicated men, dedicated to curing the ills of mankind. So they volunteered. Two of the doctors, Jesse William Lazare and James Carroll, were bitten by one species of mosquito, the Stegomyia calapus aedes aegypti. These same mosquitoes had earlier been allowed to suck the blood from a yellow fever victim who had recovered from his fight with the disease. Then the mosquitoes were allowed to suck the blood of these two doctors. The experiment was a success, perhaps too much of a success, for the two doctors contracted yellow fever and within three days after contracting the disease, they were dead. Greater love hath no man than the man who lays down his life for his friend. The sacrifice of doctors Lazare and Carroll was as great as the courage and devotion of a soldier who gives his life on the battlefield for his country. But this was only one experiment. To make sure, other volunteers were called from the army. The commanding general in Cuba, General Leonard Wood, offered to pay each volunteer $200 for their participation. And two young soldiers from Ohio volunteered. They were John R. Kissinger and John J. Moran. When offered the money for volunteering, they both turned it down saying that they had volunteered solely in the interest of humanity and for the cause of science. To the army team of doctors, this indeed was a valiant thing to do. The doctors rose to their feet, and Dr. Walter Reed said, Gentlemen, I salute you. Now every other kind of experiment took place. Sleeping in the same room as a person who had yellow fever. Using their blankets. Every way possible was used to try to transmit the disease. But the only place where the disease was ever transmitted was when the mosquito Stegomyia calapus aedes aegypti was present. The cause of yellow death had been discovered. Now that you know what you're fighting, you have a better chance of destroying your enemy. So now a way was established to end yellow fever. Destroy the breeding grounds of the mosquito, stagnant pools of water, and you will eliminate the mosquito. Oil drip tanks were now used to drip oil where the stagnant pools of water were. The oil covered the surface of the water with a film and prevented the mosquito larvae from getting air, thus causing them to die. So when the United States went into the canal building business in 1905, the killer, yellow fever, had a way of being destroyed. Before the men were allowed to go into the canal zone and work, a team of army doctors were sent in to get rid of the yellow fever mosquito. 
In charge of this team of army doctors was Dr. William C. Gorgas. He will make the canal zone as safe as possible. Now the construction began. The Corps of Army Engineers moved in, and the construction on the big ditch got underway. The old equipment of the French Canal Company and the old Panama Railroad was put to use, along with new equipment from the United States. In charge of the Corps of Army Engineers was Lieutenant Colonel George Washington Guthals, who was personally appointed by the President of the United States, Theodore Roosevelt. As Chairman and Chief Engineer, he bore the sole responsibility for the successful administration of the construction of the canal. His organizing ability overcame numerous difficulties, which included engineering problems, employee grievances, housing and sanitation problems, and law enforcement problems. Day after day, month after month, the construction of the canal dragged on. Finally, in August of 1914, the big ditch was finished. The construction of the canal had cost the United States some $400 million, had seen 240 million cubic yards of earth moved, had seen locks built, and had seen countless man-hours put together for what was termed in 1914 as our country's proudest international achievement. Besides being the United States' proudest international achievement, the canal proved to be a boom to trade and commerce, not only for the United States, but for the nations of all the world. Any nation could use this canal. The building of the canal also shows, I think, what can be done through the teamwork and cooperation of peoples. Together, the overwhelming odds of building the canal were surmounted. The discoveries of Drs. Finlay, Reed, Lazare, and Carroll were first needed, and then the technical know-how was needed to construct the canal. All of these things showed what teamwork could do, not only for one nation, but for all nations in the future. To achieve the maximum for effort given, a team can best do the job. And for the future of the world's civilization, could not the same be true? What things could not be overcome? What objectives could not be reached? What achievements for mankind could not be done if all nations were to give their best for mankind, as did those who built the Panama Canal.